During Epiphany and Lent here at Kenilworth Union this year, Christine and I are preaching this sermon series called The Unnamed, about a kind of a virtual battalion of minor characters in the Bible who don't get a name but are very important to the story. This has given Christine and me an excuse to kind of revisit the sweep of God's history with God's people from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Resurrection, including this story kind of early in Jesus' ministry from the Gospel of Mark. Now, there was a woman who had been suffering from a flow of blood for 12 years. She had endured much under many doctors and had spent everything she had and was not getting any better. In fact, she was getting worse. She'd heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his cloak, I will be whole. Immediately her flow of blood stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched me? And his disciples said to Jesus, You see the crowd pressing on you. How can you say, Who touched me? Jesus looked around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be whole. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one day, fairly early in his ministry, Jesus is sitting down to begin his daily sermon when a local rabbi interrupts him and begs him to heal his very sick daughter. So Jesus immediately abandons his sermon notes, gets up and starts charging off to do this good deed. And so there they are, Jesus and his little entourage of 12 disciples a vast horde of adoring autograph hounds, the curious paparazzi, and a security detail of no-neck bodyguards the size of NFL linebackers trying to clear him a path to his destination. But this vast rabble is not getting very far very fast in the narrow cobblestone streets of this tiny Galilean village. In the crowd, Mark tells us, is this woman who has been suffering a hemorrhage for 12 years. We don't know exactly what that means, but it appears to be some sort of menstrual difficulty. And what we need to know about that is that this was way more than an inconvenience for her. We remember that ancient Judaism was the most fastidious of religions. They had all these rules about clean and unclean, acceptable and unacceptable, touchable and untouchable. So this woman, because of what ails her, is an outcast. She is completely alone. She's on the fringe of her community. If she was married, her husband could not make love to her. He couldn't touch her. He couldn't even be close to her. If she had children, they had to keep their distance as well. So she is completely, utterly, abjectly alone. She is the very definition of loneliness. This has been going on for 12 years. Mark tells us that she's, and she'd endured much under many doctors and had spent everything she had but was not getting any better. In fact, she was getting worse. 
And then she hears about this Jesus of Nazareth, this miracle man, this wonder worker, and she says to herself, what the hell? What have I got to lose? I'll give it a whirl. But her problem is that there is this impregnable wall of humanity standing between her and him. These vast crowds are between Jesus and this woman. So what does she do? She worms her way aggressively and rudely to the front of the crowd as if she wants to touch the stage at Madison Square Garden and be showered with Bruce's sweat at a Springsteen concert. She says to herself, if I can just touch the cuff of his Levi's, if I can just touch the toe of his Chuck Taylor's, if I can just touch the fringe of his robe, maybe I will be well and they will welcome me back home. Twelve years waiting to touch the fringe of power so that she no longer has to live on the fringe of her community. Twelve years. And I love the way Mark talks about Jesus' miracle-making machine. The instant she touches the fringe of His power, she is healed. She can feel it in her body. The bleeding stops instantly. Likewise, Jesus feels the power exit from His body. Isn't that a wonderful little narrative touch? This miraculous power is tangible. This energy is palpable. It's like a shock of static electricity. Giver and receiver alike can feel this exchange of energy and the down on the back of both necks stands up straight. Do you remember how in Star Wars, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader can feel it in their bodies when somebody accesses the power of the Force and that energy drains away? That's exactly what's happening to Jesus in his story. Who touched me? Jesus instantly demands. They say there is no such thing as a dumb question. But Jesus' disciples think this might qualify. Who touched you? Jesus, you're a hot celebrity at the center of a milling melee of humanity. Who touched? Everybody's touching you. And Jesus says, no, I know when someone touches me with faithful intent. I can tell the difference. I know when someone wants something from me. He sounds angry, but he's not angry. He is stunned by this towering faith. Twelve years to touch the fringe of power. According to this story, faith is persistence. Faith is resilience. Faith is always having hope in the universe, even if the universe keeps wanting to beat you up. It's keeping covenant with your own latent potential. It's holding on to outlandish possibilities past all reasonableness. Twelve years spending all she had and suffering much, and still she keeps hope, she keeps belief, she holds her faith. When Glenn Cunningham was eight years old growing up in Kansas in 1917, someone mistakenly put gasoline instead of kerosene into a canister at his schoolhouse, and the resulting explosion killed his 13-year-old brother and left Glenn with severe burns on his legs and his torso. The doctors wanted to amputate his legs. His parents refused. It was six weeks before he sat up. 
It was two years before he could walk. At the beginning, he hauled himself up on his feet by the back of a chair, and then he graduated to the family mule. He held on to her tail. And when he got too big for that, there was an obliging horse named Paint, whose tail he held on to to walk. In 1934, when Glenn was 26, he ran a mile in four minutes and six seconds. The greatest miler in American history. Also a man of great faith. His favorite Bible verse was Isaiah 40, verse 31. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and never be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Glenn Cunningham was Louis Zamperini's hero when little Louis was growing up as a hell-bent-for-trouble teenager in California. Louis and Glenn went to the Olympics in Berlin in 1936 together. You remember Louis Zamperini, right? The protagonist from those, that beautiful book and beautiful movie, Unbroken. I've talked to you about Louis before, but I don't think I've ever talked to you about Laura Hillenbrand, who wrote the book Unbroken. Maybe you know that when she published Unbroken, she'd never met Louis Zamperini. She has been seriously ill since her college days at Kenyon College. 30 years ago, she's 55 years old now. She suffers from chronic fatigue syndrome. She almost never leaves her house in Washington. A while back, she installed a lift in her home so she could get up to the second floor. The Wall Street Journal interviewed her, and when the reporter got to her house, she said to him, I skipped my shower today so that I would have enough strength to do this interview. She never does book tours, and when she was writing Unbroken, she did hundreds and hundreds of interviews with people who knew Louis, including his Japanese captors, via telephone. <laughs> She'd heard about Louis when she was doing research for her prior book called Seabiscuit, about a scrappy little horse who wins his victories against ginormous odds. So you can see why Laura Hillenbrand loves stories about persistence and resilience. She says, I'm looking for a way out. I'm not going to get one physically, so I want one intellectually. It's a beautiful thing to ride Seabiscuit in my imagination and to stand next to Louis when he breaks the one-mile record for the NCAA. It's my way of living vicariously. So you see what happens when you keep covenant with a universe which keeps wanting to beat you up. Someone here has been suffering from ill health for 12 years and she's endured much under many doctors and spent everything she had. Someone here has been stumbling around with a broken heart for 12 years ever since he lost the love of his life. Someone here lost his job 12 years ago and has been filling out one bootless job application after another and still his towering gifts are unused. Someone here has been fighting a fierce battle for 12 years Against the noonday demon of depression, he can barely haul himself out of bed every morning. Still, you keep faith with the universe because he might just have a miracle waiting for you. 
Can you see him, this intense Galilean, sprinting across the countryside, hell-bent for Jerusalem, where he will surely die, but then rise again? If you can just touch the fringe of his power, if you can just brush the hem of his robe. Oh, by the way, Mark never gives this woman a name in the story. She's just one among a battalion of important but unnamed characters in the Bible, and the early church thought this was so wrong, so they started calling her Veronica. And at the end of Jesus' story, when he is carrying his own cross to Golgotha, down the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem, and he stumbles to his knees and hits the cobblestone pavement, Veronica rushes out of the streetside crowd and hands him her veil so that he can wipe away the blood and sweat from his face. And when Jesus hands Veronica back the veil, it is imprinted with the imparable image of his very own face. And so Veronica has become the patron saint of photographers and filmmakers. And you can probably guess what her name means, what Veronica means, because you can hear that part of it is the Greek word Nike, which means victory. So Veronica is, quite literally, the one who wins. <laughs>